Hey, welcome to Audio Crafts Conference Series. I'm Kate Montague. The following audio was recorded at our first ever conference in March 2016. This episode is Australian radio making legend Jay Kranz in conversation with Sophie Townsend. This session got a lot of love on the day. Jay peeled back the layers of her process and revealed her deeply intuitive approach to radio making. Her work is featured on the BBC, RN, In the Dark, WBZ and the Third Coast podcast and she also produces the Radio Hour. Sophie works at the ABC and is a pretty fantastic producer in her own right. Her audio stories are featured on RN, the Third Coast International Audio Festival, and in 2015 she won the Hearsay International Audio Competition with her piece, Mr Fix It. We did have a few sound issues in the first part of this session, but stick with it because it's totally worth it. To open with, Jay played a piece of audio inspiration from her parents' record collection, The Little Prince. It's something that she said wired her brain for audio storytelling. I lived my life alone without anyone that I could really talk to until I had a an accident with my plane in the desert of Sahara six years ago. Something was broken in my engine, and as I had with me neither a mechanic nor any passengers, I set myself to attempt the difficult repairs all alone. It was a question of life or death for me. I had scarcely enough drinking water to last a week. The first night then, I went to sleep on the sand a thousand miles from any human habitation. I was more isolated than a shipwrecked sailor on a raft in the middle of the ocean. As you can imagine my amazement at sunrise when I was awakened by an odd little voice. If you please, draw me a sheep. What? Draw me a sheep. I jumped to my feet completely thunderstruck. I blinked my eyes hard. I looked carefully all around me and I saw a most extraordinary small person who stood there examining me with great seriousness. Thank you. I feel like that that story taught me so much about life and storytelling. Um, what, what happens after that moment is um, the aviator draws him a sheep and the little prince is like, it's too scrawny, it's not going to do... Um, I've got these noxious weeds basically on my planet, on my asteroid, and it's, you know, it's going to have to be better than that. So he draws another one and it's, he's worried that one's going to eat all the grass. And so the next time he draws him a box and he says the sheep that you want is in this box and the little prince is delighted because it's exactly the sheep he wanted. And I guess for me I feel like radio stories or, or the best kind of radio stories feel like boxes that contain something infinite um, and um, kind of almost the, the, the contents really, the possibilities of the contents are, are the possibilities of our imagination and they even, you know, if you don't shy away from it, can contain something of the metaphysical Um, So I suppose that's kind of what I try to do. I try and make the best box I can when I make a radio story so that it can kind of hold the most because you never know what someone is going to take away, you know, from it 
to, to enrich their world or to improve their world in some way. But I like to kind of allow for that possibility and try and make, in a way, radio that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, and, you know, the other thing I love about that is that the aviator, you know, he's dying of thirst, his engine's broken, he really needs to get out of there. But he takes this job really seriously of drawing this sheep because he realises that it, it actually has real impact in the prince's world. Um, and I also love that as an invitation as makers of, um, of work that is ephemeral and that is invisible... I love the idea that, um, you know, not to lose sight of the, the possibilities of the poetic and the uses that it might be put to. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and very lastly, it's just a beautiful opening. And, you know, um, your opening is so important in anything you do. And, you know, for me, I try and make the opening feel like, you know, a lure or a kind of a mini mystery of its own. You then have to fulfil the promise um, in a way that that, that, that that any beginning promises. Um, but, um, you know, it's the beginning of pulling a rabbit out of the hat, which for me all good stories are a form of mysteries and you are constantly choosing, you know, what you pull out when and even more importantly what you don't tell when, you know, what you withhold and what you show. So I... Um, and how old were you when you started listening to that? I don't know. I guess when I was old enough to, like, not break the machine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea of, of making boxes. And um, there is that thing about sound that it, it does let a person in in a way that no other medium allows. Uh, but I guess within that box... It's not completely blank. No. There's a there's a there's a structure and a narrative, and I'm I'm really interested in the way you create those narratives, and I'm particularly interested in the the idea of storytelling in sound because you're sort of, for me, I always feel like I'm uh, dealing with two quite contradictory processes of that sort of bowerbird collection of sounds and images that you're making in sounds, but you're also trying to take, trying to use those and creating a, a, a through line. And I just, I wanted to talk to you about writing in sound. How, how do you come to that? Well, um, a few ways. The first, even, well, even before writing in sound, one of the first things I do is I ask myself if I'm in sort of deep shit. Um, with the idea of this piece, do I feel in trouble and might I drown? Um, and that's actually really important to me because I think the first thing before you even get to that is make radio that only you can make and that pushes the edges of your own knowing so you're going somewhere you haven't gone before and you're kind of making radio along an edge because I think that immediately places it, even sonically in ways you and the listener will never know, but it kind of gives it an urgency and I think good radio sounds urgent, almost, um, because there's something you actually want to answer and there's, there's something at stake. Um, and the, and the, the second thing I do, which is, you know, the first way I work with sound, is I imagine the piece. I hear it before I've made it, but I really go there and, and I take notes furiously at that time. I always make sure that I've got a document going on my phone or whatever, and I just dream it, you know, night dream it, daydream it, 
And I begin to write there in sound and thematically because you start feeling for kind of the themes, you start hearing things, and you're not kind of limited by this screen in front of you or the material that you've got. And so I think, for me, a lot of the sonic kind of ideas and a lot of the structure starts there. And then, after that, one of the kind of most important things is tone, which is really hard to talk about. Um, but, you know, a piece can go a million ways, and you have to decide what kind of sonic firmament is going to create the best world, you know, um, for the listener to imbibe this story. Um, and it's a bit like you kind of know it when you hear it. Yeah, yeah. So once I've sort of pulled out, I get very up close with all the tape and I transcribe everything and I pull out all the kind of gold bits, the bits that just feel like they leap um, and the bits that you know that, that the people are going to remember later, they're the kind of bits that are so evocative, they show, not tell. And I, I pull all of them out first on their own track and I pick the moments that feel like they encompass that something of that tone and then I try and make everything else breathe the same air as that in a way. And so it helps you kind of choose what music or what bits of tape or what sound effects because it kind of all has to be part of this one world. So in a, in a way it limits your choices um, in a way that's necessary. And it's a bit like spaghetti on the wall, you know, it's sort of like is that, does, that, does that sound stick to this, you know, um, world and it's it's sort of like you're growing a kind of DNA in a petri dish or something like that. So uh, where where are you sorry making those where are you dreaming it? Where are you imagining it? I have you is that before any collection of sound or any yeah. interviews? So Yeah, yeah, I feel like um cuz that scares the shit out of me that um <laughs> kind of thinking of something up here because you think up here and often what you get is... It will be very different, but it gives you ideas. It gives you a lot of ideas for structure and it, it, you think creatively because you're not going, this is my material, how can I make it work? You're first, first going, what if I got that sort of material and how would I get that? Um, it, it just means that you're allowing for the absolute sort of maximum possibilities of what you can do, but it also means that you're exercising your imagination, but also you're hearing it. So you're actually kind of hearing the perfect version of your first imagining of it in a way. So you're exercising your ears in a way without the limitations of skills or, or, or what you've actually got. It's just a way that personally works for me. And there'll just always be some things from that that end up you know, in a... So you would write that dreaming down, that would become your structure and then... It won't become my structure. It'll be what I will... Um, how I'll then begin to approach the piece and then I'll get more ideas as I'm going and then it will, it will constantly change. But it's the same, so it's same with interviews. It's like I usually imagine the interview so that I can imagine the scope of where it could possibly go so I can ask all the questions that I think I could possibly ask. And then, of course, the interview will go really differently and you have to think on your feet and it's a whole other thing. But by having imagined the interview, it kind of, again, felt into places that you might not go in the moment or that, you know. So it's just sort of... Um, I, I, I just think it exercises... Um, um, your brain in a way that's sort of not limited by technology or, or reality, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, and then after that, one of the really important things, I mean, obviously you've got to sort of think about structure generally, is um, editing for, um, for pulse, you know, because I feel like, um, you know, whether it's in music or film or radio, that things want to pulse with the rhythm of life. Yep. And obviously the rhythm of life is many things, but one of the really important things is tension and release. And a powerful beat. Yeah. Um, so I think this is probably a really um, good place to play Easy Love, which is a piece that is I just find profoundly moving every time I listen to it. And I think that'll get us into really illustrating what you're talking about there. 26 years ago, Warren Kirk was home on a Sunday evening in his Melbourne East suburban rental. The idea was simple. Yeah, well, I fantasised about this, why not? And I'm, you know, I'm feeling lonely, it's a Sunday night. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so we did what anyone with that line of thinking would have done in 1987. He picked up the yellow pages and turned to E for escort. Thinking, OK, I'll try and choose the best ad or the classiest place. And there was a, the big ad there for the uh, touch of class in Baldwin. Yeah, it had a, like a, a mock-up drawing of a champagne flute. And then, then in brackets, non-smokers available or something. I thought, oh, yeah, that's good. That's for me. That's... And as soon as I got off the phone, it was like, oh, dear, oh, dear. What am I, what am I doing? This... <laughs> so it almost pretty much talked myself out of the experience even before she arrived. Warren said 20 agonising minutes passed. He started to wonder if he'd actually be able to carry it off. So when the knock on the door finally came... I just told her that I'd made an extraordinarily bad <laughs> mistake and that I was, you know, and just pulled out my wallet and said, here, look, take the money and, you know, you can go. And she said, oh, you know, what about even just a massage? I said, nah, look, really, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, can we just leave it at that? She left. Then she came back. Her driver had taken off, which he wasn't supposed to do. So she asked Warren if she could wait it out with him until her driver returned. I had to sort of almost be a host. <laughs> there I was, making her cups of tea, and there she was smoking up a storm, the so-called no-smoking escort. It was a fantasy gone wrong. I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want to be sociable. I didn't... It was just like, oh, no, this is not happening. He can't remember what they talked about, but he does remember her saying that she doesn't usually do this sort of thing. In fact, the non-smoking escort explained that the only reason she was there was that she'd fallen asleep with a lit cigarette and had set her mattress and bedroom on fire, so was making some quick cash to cover the expenses. Eventually, she left. I asked him if there were any insights he'd gleaned from this whole encounter. There's a long section of our conversation where I'm prodding him for something profound. Nothing but all he came up with was no, this no. one thing. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. That was it, or so he said. But this wasn't an isolated incident. It was part of something bigger that was going on for Warren at the time. I just was emotionally like on a knife edge and also sort of feeling like, oh, well, you know, nothing matters. We just, just, leave, just do stuff, just be alive. It was a reckless time for Warren. He was doing all kinds of things he'd never done before. But it was fueled by something, something that had happened six months earlier to his then partner, a woman called Jackie. 
She'd stayed the night at my place the night before and she contacted me at work and said that she'd left her rings at my place and wanted to go and pick them up. So I gave her my keys. And then she didn't turn up to bring the keys back. And I started to think, oh, it's a, bit, a little bit odd. And then I got a call from her ex-husband telling me that she was in hospital. It'd been a car accident, but, you know, everything was going to be all right. You know. So I went up there and she was in intensive care. They were sort of operating on her, but basically it just went on and on and on and I started getting more agitated. Anyway, she, yeah, they, she died. They couldn't... Um, some guy had gone through a red light and collected her as she was coming back to my work. And going back to my place and just sort of smelling her in the bed from the night before, you know, all that, that was really very, very difficult. Was she the love of your life? Jackie, yeah, yeah. I was sort of fighting it, but yeah, definitely she was, yeah. You know, when a relationship has some sort of magic around it, can't put it into words, really. It's just like a rightness to it. Like when the temperature's right and you don't even think about it. I asked Warren if we could go for a drive to the corner of Smith Street and Victoria Parade, where the crash happened. He says it's no big deal, it's not going to disturb him. He's driven past it a million times. But he wants us to go and pick up his dog, Oki, from his place first. Warren drives. He says he's got two CDs on high rotation at the moment. One of them plays when the engine starts up. Things that you leave behind Often will cross your mind But you won't forget them Cause friends like those Never really go They never really say goodbye It's a bit prophetic, some of that. OK, I'll get the boy. Yes, OK. Well, I've been away that long. Even thinking about losing him. I spend so much of my time with him and he's such a companion and then he's going to die on me. Settle, mate. When was the first week of June? I think it was the 15th of December. There's the finality of that. You know, I cannot ever talk to that person ever again. When somebody's just gone, gone, it's disappeared. It's like, fuck, that's it. I didn't, you know, should, could have, should have, maybe, you know, you know, just should have loved him more, just given myself to it completely. I was sort of fighting it. Fear, fear of failure, fear, I mean, what, yeah. So this is the corner right here. So as I understand, she was just driving across here and a guy coming, came down Victoria Parade and hit her, hit her there. This looks. We pull over around the corner and Warren cuts the engine for a few minutes. What did she look like? Beautiful, most stunning, beautiful blue eyes you've ever seen. He told me he found out later that her eyes had been given to someone else, transplanted. I always used to think about that for a while, thinking that was someone who was actually walking around, using her eyes and seeing, to think that when if I'd ever meet that person that had her eyes... We head back. Warren puts the second CD in the player. He says he's feeling sad, like something's been opened that hasn't been opened in a while. At first, he said that happened all the time. Case in point, on the drive back, Warren gestures towards a narrow side street that we pass. That's the street, he says. 
that he'd happened to drive down two months after Jackie's death. And her smashed car was sitting in the street outside a bloody crash repairers. And I went into it and I actually found her licence on the floor. It was horrible. It was, you know, I couldn't believe that her car was just sort of still existed and was just sitting there. And, you know, it wasn't long after that that he had this kind of grief-induced clarity, that thing about just living. He asked strangers on dates. He took brave steps with his photographs. And one Sunday night, as you know, he picked up the yellow pages and he dialed a touch of class. It got me thinking about that line he'd said earlier, sometimes, sometimes you win, sometimes you, sometimes you lose. I asked him how he was going with that. Which one had the upper hand so far in life? Had he won more? Had he lost more? There was no contest. Loss is, a, is like a motif in my life and it has been ever since I was a kid. He mentions his mum leaving for a long time when he was young. Then, the woman who took care of him left. They moved state a lot. He was always leaving schools, leaving friends behind, leaving his first girlfriend, losing animals he loved. I've possibly just relived those through my life, that sort of loss taking away. And is it still there now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't feel like I'm very good at forming long-term relationships. Is that since Jackie? Oh, definitely the case since, yeah, since Jackie died. You know, now thinking about it, I probably haven't anywhere near lived the life that I would have thought at that point after she died. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just going to, like, go full throttle. I definitely, definitely don't live like that at all. Is it too late? No, no, of course not. No, it's never too late. He's trying to remember the lesson of living, but it's not easy. I ask him what this last song is that we're listening to. He passes me the cover. It's called Easy Love. I look at the lyrics to see if I heard them right. One line reads, Every heartbreak feels just like death. But another reads, Who'd have thought it'd be so easy to fall in love all over again? Maybe this song will be prophetic too. I want to talk to you first about the end of the piece and I don't know if you all heard there's that slight dog whimper which for me kind of encapsulates everything about it and I wonder if that's um, like is that sort of accidental are you really Um, with anything like that I try and work um I try and get so close to the piece that I'm working with, but at the same time create this little bit of breathing space so that I start to work intuitively and little rhymes happen and layers happen that you can discover and kind of go back and find again or look at in a new light. And so it almost then becomes bigger than me and you start making these choices intuitively just based on sort of... um, staying very close to your intention and what you want people to go away feeling. And I just find the more I 
stay close to that and try not to do anything in the sound design that's showing off or, or pulling away from it, but try and make everything sort of deepen it. And I sort of start to get resonances and layers and stuff like that. But, you know, in that moment, the dog, you, you realise by the end of the story, the dog meant, means more now than it did at the start. At the start it was like, I'm just going to get the dog. And by the end of it, you, you kind of experience the dog with, with a kind of hindsight or an insight of like, that, that's his companion now. The dog needs him and he needs the dog. And I wanted to kind of remind us of that as we felt him going away. I want to go home and hug my spoodle. Um, <laughs> uh, I also, I think there's something that, I mean, we, we listen to pieces and we think that is the structure, that is, that is the piece. And, but we forget there are a lot of decisions about um, where we start. And you could have started with the car accident and um, I'm just... At, it, it feels so right to start with the escort story, but how do you how do you make that decision? Are you thinking I I want to say something about him? How do you decide where you want to start peeling back? Mm. I mean, a big part of it for me is you know, what journey. Well, I want someone listening to go on a journey. I feel like we're all busy, and we all come to radio stories because we want to be taken somewhere. We want to be sort of swept away and have something about the workings or the wonder of the world revealed to us in some new way. And one of the ways you do that is by emotionally involving you in a story and letting you in. And sometimes when a story doesn't hit me, I feel it's like because they forgot to let me in. Um, and so if I had started it with just the death of Jackie, it would have been kind of, you know, a bit... Too bad, you know, that, that's really terrible, but he wouldn't have kind of been able to experience the uniqueness of his grief and that in his life. And so, you know, one of the ways to, to let you in is to create empathy with the subject. So I wanted to start with that story because one of the first things he says or one of the first pieces of tape I use is, is I was lonely and it was a Sunday night. And I think that's something that we all can, you know, straight away that's just a universal thing that we can empathise with. And then he describes a series of blunders that are sort of sad and funny and awkward where he forgot to ask for a non-smoking escort and then, you know, he reveals his insecurity about his sexual performance and, and he's, you know, his awkwardness in having to play host. And by this time, we're with him. And I feel like that's really, really important in, across all forms of storytelling is to find a way to, to connect to that person. Um, and even if you're doing something that's quite a political piece or quite a sort of social piece, I still think if you want to get the thing across that you're wanting to get across, you know, you have to kind of let people, give people a reason to care kind of, because it's not that we don't care, it's just like, you know, we're busy, it's hard to drop in. So I wanted to do that um, to establish a connection so it's like, okay, now we can experience what he went through. Um, and the other reason is, um, which is I think one of the great pleasures of storytelling, which is something I kind of said before, which is um, when you get to experience something twice in a piece where you sort of you hear it on its own merits and then the piece progresses and you learn more and then you can look back with insight 
um, at that first moment and kind of re-experience it. So, I, I, you know, I think that's one of... That, that discovery, giving... I, I like to try and give listeners that opportunity for discovery. I think that um, the non-smoking escort is such a great moment because in, in that requesting a non-smoking escort kind of just says something you just kind of feel you know him yeah. in that moment yeah. um well the the detail the specifics of one person it's like that's what makes them human it's not kind of yeah like someone who doesn't think about a non-smoking escort is kind of and i'm not making moral just uh moral judgments about smoking escorts here but there's sort of something about that kind of you, you just nail it, it that character and i suppose you always i mean how do you are you looking for those moments when you're interviewing how do you yeah always establish a character um it's just something that i'm sure you know everyone and you'd be the same who who, who makes radio when you walk away from an interview without that kind of stuff you, you just always regret it. Um, and so for me, every you know, whenever I'm in an interview, I have to, you know, the idea of walking away without those important details that bore into the specificity of that, specificity of that person and that event, to come away with that is more painful than, like, being a pain in the ass to the person you're interviewing or asking questions that seem stupid or getting them to repeat something again. So I guess I just keep trying to find, you know, find ways of getting whoever I'm interviewing to, you know, get right into the moment as much as possible. And kind of usually, um, usually it happens when they, when they feel comfortable. And when they feel like a genuine encounter is happening, they start sort of being free to kind of really tell you about it. It's usually people tell you something first and then they really tell you. So it's just sort of like allowing for that almost. Um, I think uh, we should move on to Leaves, which is another beautiful piece. We're just going to play some excerpts. Um, uh, but can you just tell us how the piece came about? Mm. Um, so BBC, uh, BBC um, there's a production company called Falling Leaves that make a lot of work for the BBC. It's an independent production house in the UK. And they picked five producers around the world and gave them all one line of a five-line poem. And they said, make adventurous radio with it. Um, and my line was, the leaves frost crisped break from the trees. We're just going to play like two parts of it because we don't have time to play it all. So just the, a little bit way, a little bit of a way in to the first person, and then we'll play play a later bit. When you step into the world of imagery, there are no rules. Okay, it's just like entering a dream state. The poem. If this is resonating with the person, there will be an immediate reaction and they are going to be able to express something about their life. Something's going to happen. Cutting out a bit of the rot. My name's Moo, Marty or Mark. So I can square it all off and clean it all up so I can put a new piece of wood in there. I do general home maintenance. Joe jobs. They call me a Joe. I do most jobs. Right. The leaves frost crisped 
break from the trees. Mm. Yeah, the leaves frost, frost crisp, crisp break from the trees. Mm. I'm just thinking about my avocado tree. It's been in the ground for two years. We had a big frost two nights ago and I think it's got it. I've got two water tanks down the back of the property. So they say if you have a bit of thermal mass behind a tree, the cold won't get it. But I think the tree's too young. It hasn't got much resistance to the frost. If it was older, it'd probably shrug it off. You grow older, you become a bit more robust. A bit more resilient, yeah. Mm. There's ants in there too. Found a hole, so they're nesting in there for the winter or forever. But not now. Brings back memories of my childhood. It was a sheep farm. I would have been 11 or 12. Uncle Ken had come into my room and go, Mark, come on. I was his right-hand man. One day, he dragged a sheep out of the pens. He told me to hang on to the sheep. And he came back with this big knife and cut its throat while I was hanging on to it. Blood went everywhere. I went, I went a bit uh, funny, a bit lightheaded. Never sort of had an animal or anything killed while I was holding on to it. With that, he dragged it into the hanging room and skinned the sheep. I watched him. I think I was a bit weak because I, I couldn't deal with it. But that, that moment probably helped me to be a bit stronger and resilient because I hung tough. And three nights later, there was a strong, gamey smell of lamb. Uncle Ken looked across the table at me and he said, Mart. You know, you know that lamb, lamb we, we killed, killed the, the other, other night? He says, you're, you're eating, eating it. it. I thought, I can't eat that. He was training me up for the rest of my life, you know. Suddenly we're already there because of the speed of the metaphor. When an image affects our thoughts and emotions, neurotransmitters and chemicals flow through the brain. And one image begets another and pulls up associations, memories, and emotions. So we'll just, should we go on to the second excerpt? It doesn't reveal itself all at once. It sounds quite brittle, crisped and frost and break. It's forced to make a choice and the survival choice is to drop the leaves. I made the decision to leave, to leave home when I was 15. I understood that if I didn't, then I wouldn't survive. So whether I'm the leaf or the tree, I don't know. <laughs> I was really lonely after my mum died. My dad drove a cab at night. He'd come home about four or five in the morning, if he came home, because he always used to disappear for days. He'd go on drinking binges, gambling binges, dice, cards, anything, really, horses. The last event that made me realise that I had to get out of there, he was yelling at me and he picked up a kitchen knife, carving my hand, ran at me. In that time leading up to when I left, I had accumulated a small stash of Valium and Mogadon of my dad's. 
So on the night that I was leaving, I slipped quantities of those into people's beverages. When I made their <laughs> evening tea... So my stepmum, my poor grandmother who was visiting from Greece at the time, who was sleeping in the same room as Crushed me. the pills. Stir it a bit and give them the cup of tea. I knew I wasn't overdosing anyone. I just knew that was the only way I was going to get out quietly without any fuss as planned. You know, my dad was going to be at work. I was going to be able to take his car. So when everyone was asleep, got out of bed, made the bed shape, made a little shape that looked like a body in the bed, got the suitcase out from under the bed, picked up car keys, went down the hallway, through the garage to the laneway, and that was the car was there. It was an old white station wagon. I'd never driven, but I drove. <laughs> what a mental idea. I did sideswipe a parked car. It's dark and there's lights going past and I'm a bit worried about how narrow the streets seem. And I don't remember sleeping that night. One of my clearest memories later that evening is driving over the overpass with the city lights. And on the radio, drive by the cars is playing Who's Going to Drive You Home Tonight? And my memory driving over that bridge is a feeling of relief and exhilaration and a potential freedom that was so incredible and so reinforcing of what I had just done. And it was full of hope, really, that this might be a turning point and that I'd, yeah, live. The leaves frost-crisped, break from the trees. That feeling has never left me. What strikes you about that line? It creates a feeling for me. What is it that resonates so much with you? So if I ask you that, what would you answer? So that's that's, um, several stories within one piece, and I'm just... um, I'm aware that we're running out of time, but I'm just curious, how do you deal with uh, sort of the structure of those small moments within a superstructure and and are you aware that each piece has to move forward to the next and how do you deal with that? I mean, as far as each one moving forward to the next, I think that comes sort of back to that thing I was talking about, I think I was talking about before, about, you know, always giving the listener a reason to keep listening, that kind of rabbit out of the hat thing where you sort of always have to be raising questions, answering some. As you answer some, you've got to raise another and just always make sure there's a kind of something in there that's pulling on the listener to stay. But the other thing is, is, is just sort of unifying it, which I think is the other part of your question, you know, which comes back to that tone stuff. Um, um, and just kind of, you, you can tell kind of when you're cheating and you're putting something in that feels like it doesn't belong. It's sort of really good, I find, the only way I can do it is to kind of do a gut check and then go back to what the piece is really about and say, is this pulling me deeper into it? Is it pulling the listener deeper in? Um, is it making it greater than the sum of its parts or is it fracturing it? Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of the ways. So when you're making that decision, what's your ratio? Like, and I know it'll be different, but are you... Do you feel 
you know, there's a natural tendency to cheat and add the wrong things. How often are you pulling stuff out or changing? I mean, it's hard, it's hard because in this case it was such a short piece and I was trying to do too much with it, really. So I was actually worked, like with that last one, I worked on a ratio of almost 100 to 1. It was th- actually three hours of interview tape, which is ridiculous, but there were sort of reasons for that, to, into three minutes. So in a way, that was the hardest editing job I've ever done in my life. And that was... So that was sort of different in that way because I was just trying to go, what's the essence? And, yeah, there were, there were lots of... But, and I had to cut. So whereas if I was in a longer piece, maybe I would sort of, you know accidentally cheat more but in that case I just had a there were bits I kept wanting and I was like well it's not the heart of what that moment is about and I think it's just that thing of keeping on asking yourself what is this section about what is the whole thing about and just kind of keep coming back to that as your kind of you know the thing that helps you cut as meaningfully as possible. Um, Are there questions from the audience? Hello. Uh, when you listen back to those stories, like the ones we've just heard, do you hear things in the stories, listening back to it, that you want to change, or are they pretty much perfect? <laughs> well, obviously, like us all sitting here, think they're pretty perfect, but you're, you're, the, you're the one that made it, so you're probably the most critical of it. Um, I, 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 I'm critical of it. Right, certainly after I finish making a piece, I'm critical of it. And then there's sort of a cut-off point where I'm critical of the next thing I'm making and I can't afford to continue to be critical about everything. So I just sort of... um, At some point, I think it's really important to chalk something down to a moment in time in your, you know, um, professional creative career or whatever. So I try not to criticise and it's, it's, it's a bit more like reminiscing about an old lover or something because you just spent so much time with that thing that um, sort of evokes a time more than anything. But, yeah, I'm certainly... I never... You know, for me, a work is never finished. It's only ever abandoned and I, I never feel like I've done enough with a piece. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your, your interview techniques. Um, those stories were all very personal. Um, those people were, were really opening up to you about some very deep personal things. And you, you talked about giving them space and that it, I'm guessing it takes a lot of time with that person to get to that level of intimacy. Or, or can, can you just shed a bit more light about how do you get someone... What, what do you tell them about the piece? Like, what, how do you get them there? I usually don't tell anyone anything about the piece because it, it makes them second guess and makes them feel self-conscious. But I, I don't, I'm not sort of controlling either. I don't... I'll answer questions if they have them, but I don't know... I never know what piece I'm going to make until I'm editing it. So, um, and I, I, in fact, I often tell... I pretty much always tell someone that I, when I interview them that it, this may not end up in a piece, which I think helps, but it is actually true because there's plenty of interviews that just feel like they didn't belong. Um, but, you know, that thing I was saying about making sure you're in deep water yourself, making sure this is something that, that has some urgency for you, I think that helps in an interview because you're actually coming in there very genuinely. You're not, you're not making a piece you know, to tell someone what you already know. You're coming in there to find something out yourself. So I think, like, if you're curious, they'll sense that. And if you're genuine, like, have a genuine encounter 
I think that's like the most important thing and make it two-way and try and make the, you know, physical situation as comfortable as possible and lead the way. Like, I, I'm, um, I can't remember who said it, um, but I remember someone saying that an interview is is like throwing a party for for two and you're the host. That's like how you are, they will be. So be candid, be real, let yourself laugh, be emotional if you're emotional. Like sort of that will reflect the kind of level of, of animation or the kind of level of honesty that you talk to them with. I think they'll reflect that back. So I think it's just sort of, you know, have, have a kind of the best conversation you can have and that also happens to be an interview. Hello, I've got a question. Um, it's about music, because it sounds like you record music when you're there in the interviews as well, sometimes. But I'm just curious about where you personally introduce music into your production process and how important it is in the construction of the stories too. Um, vital. Um, music always serves as a frame. And so it's for me, it's just always choosing about what you want to frame and how you want to frame it. And the inside of the frame, which I'll call the time that you hear music, um, you choose what you want to be inside the music frame, but also the minute music stops, which I think you, you might have heard, it was very quiet, but the minute music stops, the next moment becomes really alive because suddenly it's empty. And so those moments are sometimes, like as much as you want to highlight something with music, you can also highlight it the minute you take it out. So I kind of work with that rhythm quite a lot. Um, and I try and only use it to kind of, you know, again, it's like, what do I want this moment to feel like and how can I, do I want it to glow? Do I want it to feel tense? Do I want to enhance it? Do I want to make it playful? You know, and then I just sort of um, try and only, like, I guess my principle with music and anything is sort of invoke the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. You know, which might be setting the bar low, but, yeah. Hello. Uh, how do you know when to scrap a bad story? Um, you know, you come away from an interview and thinking, oh, this is not really working. Uh, how do you identify those sorts of things that just aren't going to work in a, in a piece? Well, I think you know it once you've done the interview. Um, but I don't think it should mean you should give up on the piece. Again, it's that thing of, like, how much do you want to make it? And I really strongly believe that it's just all about grit. You know, if you work hard enough, you, you'll make the piece. But if that piece is dependent on that interview and it didn't work, I would, I would do a second interview if I could, if I felt like that person had the potential. Um, like the very first interview I did for Leaves, I didn't include because um, I knew it wasn't gonna, just wasn't the right tone. Um, but it was a great interview, great to do, and it kind of got me into the process. But then I, and then all the other interviews, I used all of them. But sort of like, don't give up, but give up if, <laughs> you know, again, it's just sort of using your gut. Sometimes, sometimes I just know, again, I sort of do the imagining thing. I go, well, if that's the sort of quality of tape, and what else can I do, and does that add up to enough? I think it's, you know, it's really important to kind of have that combination of like, don't waste your time on it, but also work work your heart out, you know, sweat blood and it will work. I kind of think, I kind of believe in both things really strongly. Mm. Um, just a quick one about, I, I, I sort of, once I have material, I feel like I trust my instincts in the editing process and that's kind of fine, but the bit that I find really difficult is finding those 
amazing stories that you've found. There must be so much work that goes into finding these people first before you even get the amazing material to play with. Where do you find these these people, these stories? That's the hard bit for me. On the street. <laughs> um, some people I know already and other times I just meet someone and I just feel like they're... I have a feeling about them. Um, it, again, it's just like, it's, it's just a human thing. It's just uh, connect to something about them as a person. They're probably voluble, easy, you know, you can feel that they like to talk, but also, you know, every, sometimes I'm just interested by the way someone talks because it, it's almost like they're a whole ontology of language that I find fascinating and that I sense will translate well on radio or something. So um, I just kind of always have my ears open and, you know, most of the time it's just luck, you know, and that the, the interviews that don't work it, you don't use. <laughs> Hello. Um, I was interested in hearing you when we first began talking about the imagining and I was wondering if you remember if you might be able to share what that first piece we heard looked like in your mind before you started? Um, before I started making it, I actually already had the escort story interviewed because he was one of those people that I met and I instantly knew I wanted to interview him. And so I interviewed him for that story. And, yeah, the idea for the rest of the story came by walking my dog around the block and thinking... I knew that he'd mentioned something about a car crash and I knew that he'd been single for a long time and I just thought, how can I do this and make it, you know, because I love action in radio stories where there's, like, movement mixed with kind of more static interview stuff. And I just thought I'd... What what would happen if I played with the kind of proximity effect of him physically going close to that crash site? So... um, I I didn't know what he was going to say. I didn't know he was going to say that beautiful thing about the eyes and... You know, I didn't know he was going to play that music in the car. So I just sort of decided on a kind of... It was really just a gamble of, like, this feels like a possible um, interesting way to, like, physically approach um, a a moment of trauma. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up there because it is time, but thank you so much for this beautiful session. Oh, my God. Thanks for listening to the Audio Craft Conference Series. If you'd like to listen to the full versions of Jay's work, we've put them up on our website, audiocraft.com.au. And while you're there, check out our other sessions and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at audiocraftconf. This series was produced by Miles Martignoni and Jessica Binneth.